Good morning. It's usually dangerous when someone, especially when you're preaching four times and running between, tries to give you advice about what to say, but I just got great advice from Derek coming in. He was like, no football jokes. <laughs> Too soon. And I, I was like, yeah, he's like, eye contact, no football jokes. So I want to acknowledge publicly, I'm not making any football jokes, none at all. A Georgia Tech fan never ridicules any other football team because shame will soon follow us as we go. I don't remember where we are starting though. Okay, so uh, our Together series. Today we are going into the second week of this teaching series where we're examining our new vision statement. Statement that we is encouraging one another to follow Jesus wherever we live, work, and play. That's the kind of place we want to be. Encouraging one another to follow Jesus wherever we live, work, and play. We don't want this to be something that goes on a binder because a session passed it and we put it in a folder and it goes on a shelf and no one looks at it again. We think and hope that this is short enough that you can remember it, you can learn it, you can have it living within you, um, but it also has depth enough that we can be reminded of who we are and also where God wants us to go, that it can be something that shapes our future and where we're headed. So we want to take some time to talk through it all. And last week we talked about what does it mean to be a community of encouragers, that that's the kind of church we want to be, a community that encourages one another, that helps each other to stand in courage, which is what the word encouragement actually leads us to. That the default for many of us is that we don't stand in courage, we stand in fear. The fear is a natural part of so many of our lives. And the thing is, is that you can't make up your mind as an individual just to be courageous. You can't just wake up going, today I'm going to do it. This time I mean it and I'm going to carry it on for the rest of my life. No, that's not how it works. Paul writes that we have to find encouragement by our life together. It's in community. It's in being together that we're reminded to stand in courage because we're reminded of the one with whom we stand, Jesus, who has already overcome whatever it is that causes us fear. So we want to be a community of encouragers. And the second part today um, that we're going to talk about is what does it mean to do that, uh, encourage one another to follow Jesus? Now, some folks might say, well, you're a church, and so you had to put that part in there. But I think that there's real significance to these words, and I want to say from the beginning that when we say that we're a community that's encouraging one another to follow Jesus, we are intentionally inserting both clarity and ambiguity into our life, which is a weird thing to do with a vision statement, right? We're inserting both clarity, we're making things clear, but we're also inserting some ambiguity into our vision statement. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, clarity. To say that we're following Jesus means that we at Covenant Presbyterian Church believe that Jesus was a historical person, believe that he lived a couple of thousand years ago. We believe that what he embodied and what he taught was so different that people started gathering around him to hear about love and to hear about grace and to hear about forgiveness and to hear about reconciliation and to hear about how much God loved them. And then as they were together, Jesus was uh, someone who healed people who performed miracles. And as he drew the attention of the establishment, the political establishment, the religious establishment, he was dangerous. And so they eventually had him killed. They had him killed and he died on a Roman cross. He died outside of Jerusalem during the festival of the Passover, abandoned and alone and betrayed by everyone that he loved. But then we believe that three days later he rose again from the dead. He rose again 
and that life and love in this world in his name have already triumphed and will always triumph over death and hatred and injustice. And so we celebrate that. We celebrate that he was not just a great teacher, that he is the Messiah, that he is the Savior, that he is the Christ for all people of all time. And we want to be crystal clear about that. But there's also ambiguity that comes in when you say that you're encouraging one another to follow Jesus. And we have to admit that as well and actually see that as a really healthy thing. Because we have to admit that there's a certain tension that exists when we build a religious system around following a person who was in conflict with every religious and political system of his day. That sometimes it's not always clear what does it mean to follow Jesus. That sometimes people are going to say, well, I think following Jesus means that on this issue we should vote this way and do this thing. And other people are going to go, no, 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 I think following Jesus means we actually vote the opposite way and live the opposite way. And that that's a good conversation for us to have. That the dangerous stuff in life happens when everyone's going, yep, we're just all so right and this is how it all works and everybody sees everything the same way. That's where we miss stuff. And so it would be easier and cleaner if we said we're encouraging one another to join the religious institution of the church. That would be easier because then we hand you a handbook and we're like, here are the rules, right? We're encouraging one another to be Presbyterian. That's easier because we got lots of rules about what that means, right? We can hand you all kinds of rules about what to think in that. That would be a cleaner system because then it's like you're either doing it or you're not. We're encouraging one another to follow Jesus. It brings clarity as to who Jesus is, but because he's Lord and Messiah, there's also times where we're going, his ways may not be our ways, and it's sometimes even in our conflict or disagreement about what following Jesus means that we all learn something. Do you know what I mean by that? And so we're actually thinking it's a really healthy thing to have a certain amount of ambiguity as we encourage one another to follow Jesus. But this morning, to start trying to get our arms around this idea of what following Jesus looks like, we're going to look at one of my favorite passages of Scripture from Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. And I invite you to listen now to God's word to us all today. Once, while Jesus was standing beside the lake of Gennesaret, and the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he saw two boats there at the shore of the lake. The fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little way from the shore. Then he sat down and taught the crowds from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we've worked all night long, but have caught nothing. Yet if you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done this, they caught so many fish that their nets were beginning to break. So they, signaled to, so they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. For he and all who were with him were amazed at the catch of fish they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. Then Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching people. When they had brought their boats to shore, they left everything and followed him. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask that no matter who we are, you'd open our minds and hearts to how you want to shape and mold us as your people. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So I love this passage, and some of the parts we're not going to really be able to talk about because um, we don't have time to today. But, but there's this amazing idea that Jesus is teaching these crowds. He never gets tired of them. He just is kind of with them. And then he has this odd thing where he gets in a boat, which is like this. It's kind of weird, right? If you're like teaching a class or teaching a group of people, and then you're like, I'm going to go teach you from the boat. It's like, is there symbolism in this? Or like, what does that mean? And, but what most scholars think is that the crowds by, already by Luke chapter 5 were getting too big to actually hear Jesus anymore. He didn't have wireless microphones. And so on, if you've ever been to the Holy Land or you've seen kind of a lake or a sea this way, like in Maine or in Oregon or something, there's these kind of dramatic shorelines that go down to the water really dramatically, like really quick. It's a steep drop-off, right? That's how a lot of the lakes and seas are in um, the region, the Galilean region of, of Israel. And so what they think is, is that Jesus was just trying to figure out how to get heard by everybody. And so he found a natural cove in the water and that had these dramatic kind of shoreline going in. And then he went out in a boat in the middle of it. And it was like a natural amphitheater around him, that it had really good acoustics like amphitheaters do, where you can be heard by more and more people. So he's just out sitting in this boat and it allowed more people to hear what he was saying and teaching about. And at the end of this teaching... He then looks at Simon, who's going to become Peter. This is the first interaction between Jesus and Peter, who Jesus is going to look at in a few chapters and say, on you I will build my church. The world changes because of this relationship right here. This is the first time they meet. And as they're there, Jesus says to him, why don't you go out into the deeper waters and put your nets down again? Now this is a pretty cool moment because Simon Peter does it. Now he's a professional, professional fisherman. He's been out fishing all night. He has not slept. He's exhausted, and they haven't caught anything. And it would have been, if it had been me, I would have been like, why don't you, you're a carpenter, why don't you build tables and let the fishermen do the actual, you know, fishing work? But he does it. Something in Simon goes out there, and they do it, and they put the fish down, and they bring in so many fish that it starts to break the nets. They have to call out a second boat. Both boats start to sink. And Simon has this amazing response, and it's kind of weird when you first read it because he goes, sees all these fish, and he looks at Jesus and kneels down in front of him and says, go away from me, Lord, because I am a sinful man. Now, you might have thought that he might have said something different, like, hey, can you do that again? <laughs> right? Like, I make my living doing this, and we just earn more in five minutes than we normally earn in a month. So can you hang around? Because if you hang around, we can really expand our business here and live well. Or he could have said something like, what else do you want to teach me? Because you obviously have power over nature. But what happens is, is that Peter recognizes, Simon Peter recognizes that Jesus is not just a teacher in this, that he has power over nature. He is a divine being. He is a, a holy person. And Peter kneels down and says, go away from me because I am sinful. If you and I are going to encourage one another to follow Jesus, we have to be crystal clear that this is the starting point for each and every one of us. That we need to have those moments, and we're going to talk about this as we go on, where we stop and go, you are holy, I am not. You are God, I am not. You are in control, I am not. I like to be in control and act like God, but you are God and I am not. We have to have those moments where we stop and say in our own way, whatever language we put to it, Lord, you need to go away from me because I'm a sinful person. And that is hard for human beings because we like to be good people, right? We like to think of ourselves as good with just a, you know, just a couple of hiccups in there. Not always perfect, but I'm a good person. 
kind of doing this. And the world's basically a good place, and if we just could polish it up a little more and make it a shiny and happier place, it would all be great. That's not what the church is. It's not what the church is. That's not what following Jesus is about. Rather, it's about that moment where you stop and get on your knees and say, Lord, I am broken. I am a broken person living in a broken world. And this is harder for us, especially in our culture, because we have become perfectors in America at being convinced of our own self-worth and our own self-importance. And we have got social media now where we can dispense our wisdom upon the world all the time with no one asking for it. We can talk about how Charlie Strong should have done stuff differently than last night and how if we were in control, we would have made far better decisions than him. We can talk about politics and how we both know more than any of those other politicians that are up there. If we were in control, we've got the answers to pretty much everything. And a forum to dispense our wisdom to the world becomes this, makes us obsessed almost with our own self-worth. Let me give you evidence of this. In 1950, a Gallup poll was conducted that asked people one question in the United States of America. It asked them, are you a very important person? In 1950, 12% of people said, yes, I am a very important person. In 2005, Gallup poll asked Americans the same question, are you very important? And over 80% said, yes, I am a very important person. I need to be heard by the world and listened and respected for myself because I'm worth it. It is totally different to have Peter drop to his knees and go, go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful person. That is a totally different worldview. It's a totally different mindset. But I believe, friends, that it is important, it is vital, it is critical that you and I have an accurate and truthful view of ourselves in the world. We are broken people living in a broken world. It doesn't mean that we don't produce beautiful things at times and have beautiful moments. But as Paul writes, every one of us in this room fails to do what is right. And every one of us in this room does what we know is wrong every day. And we choose it because of our brokenness. I've used this example before. One of the great parts in being a Christian and a husband is that it's very clear what the Bible calls me to do as a husband. It's not mysterious. I am called to outserve my wife. I just don't want to. I like things the way I like them. And I choose that a lot of the time. Not always, but lots of times I do. And it's not a question of knowledge. Do I know the rules? I do. We are broken people living in a broken world. And until we rest in that truth, we are fooling ourselves. Even though in the moment it feels better. No, we're basically good with kind of, the world's basically a good place. It's just a few bad apples and the media keeps reporting on them and sensationalizing it. Uh Uh-uh. When we are confronted with the presence of holiness, we will be like Peter saying, go away from me, Lord. I am aware of my brokenness. I'm aware of my sin. I'm aware that I don't deserve to be in your presence. That is the starting point of following Jesus. And the hard part about that is when you admit that, you feel like you lose, right? It's like, well, 
then what's the point? Like, I'm trying so hard to, like, be the great student and be the great Christian and be the great person and have a lot of friends and all this other stuff. And if you just admit from the beginning, I'm just broken, that feels like you're admitting defeat. You're admitting loss. Because we find our self-worth in what we accomplish and what we do and what we have. But rather, Jesus' response to Peter is so awesome here. Because on the one hand, he doesn't sit there and go, no, Peter, you're a good guy. You're really swell. Power of positivity, Peter. Don't think of yourself that way. Take that frown and turn it upside down. He doesn't do that. And I believe it's deliberate that he doesn't do that. But he also, on the other hand, doesn't shame Peter. He doesn't sit there and go, you're right. You need to turn your life around. You better get your stuff together. You've been trying all the time to convince everyone you're a really good guy and a really good fisherman and Mr. Noble. And, and got You need to just kind of like clean yourself up, Peter. He doesn't shame Peter. He doesn't guilt trip Peter. But what he does is respond in this wonderful way saying, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of your brokenness. Don't be afraid to sit in that. Come follow me and I will make you a fisher of people. I, will, I see you in your brokenness. I love you just as you are. And I can send you out to do more than just be a fisherman and a really swell dude. I can send you out to change this world. But you're going to take control of it if you don't start by admitting your brokenness all the time. And it's so good It's so good what Peter experiences there. And John and James, the sons of Zebedee, it says that they leave everything behind and they just go follow him. I mean, all the stuff that we spend so much time getting us cars and accumulating stuff, they had worked hard to build these boats and build their business and everything. They just leave it behind. All of a sudden, what Jesus has done in their life is so amazing. They're like, it doesn't matter anymore. This is not what it's about. I am going to dedicate everything to just being with you who sees me as I am and your grace washes over me. I want to be in that place with you. Wouldn't you love to know that feeling? Wouldn't you love to know what it's like to find something that was so wondrous that you just looked at everything else in the world and was like, it's not important. It's not what it's about. And I have the freedom just to kind of walk away if I needed to. I, I don't think I have that freedom. I think what Peter found was summarized by one of my favorite authors, Brendan Manning, who wrote a book called Um, the ragamuffin gospel. We're going to bring a quote up here. This is what he writes. He says, when I get honest, I admit I am a bundle of paradoxes. I believe and I doubt. I hope and get discouraged. I love and I hate. I feel bad about feeling good. I feel guilty about not feeling guilty. I am trusting and suspicious. I am honest and I still play games. To live by grace means to acknowledge my whole life story, the light side and the dark. In admitting my shadow side, I learn who I am and what God's grace means. As Thomas Merton put it, a saint is not someone who is good, but who experiences the goodness of God. And then this sentence, which I want us to keep up for a second, my deepest awareness of myself is that I am deeply loved by Jesus Christ and I have done nothing to earn it or deserve it. I think that's what Simon Peter in the boat experiences for the first time with crystal clarity, that his deepest awareness of myself is that I am deeply loved by Jesus Christ and I have done nothing to earn it or deserve it. Now, friends, if you've been in church before, I hope that you've heard something like this. But what I want to invite us to do this week is to actually experience it. 
Not just to leave here going, oh, I've heard that before, got the facts, sinner, broken, grace, redemption, got it. But we're meant to experience this, not just learn it. So this is where, on your seat, are some note cards. I hope we're there. I need you to pull that out, and you're going to have to share a pencil or pen. You've got to, I know some of you are like, yeah, I don't do this thing. You've got to do this. You have to do it today, or at least just humor me in writing this down. Because if you don't write this down, you will actually forget. And Derek's going to be bringing some extra pencils around if people need them or stuff. But you can share. You're going to actually forget. What I want you to do is on one side of the card, at the very top of it, I got my card here, just at the very top in small letters, because you're going to have to write a lot this week, I want you to write two words, my sin. Little letters, because you're going to sin a lot this week, okay? My wife looked at me and she's like, you're going to need a second card by Tuesday, which I probably will. So I'm going to get a scroll for mine. But just little letters, just my sin. And you're going to carry this with you this week. You're going to carry it wherever you go. Carry it in your purse, carry it in your pocket. Um, keep it with you. Because we as human beings are wired not to remember. If you don't write it down, you are going to forget what you need to confess. I've learned about this. And as you're writing that down, just my sin at the top, you're not going to put anything else right now. Heard about something this uh, recently that is, this is a real thing. It is a, a, a term that academics have studied and started using that is called unethical amnesia. You need to know about unethical amnesia because this is why these cards are going to be so important. Unethical amnesia was a study that was completed recently by researchers at two of the great institutions of higher learning in this world, in this country, certainly. Northwestern University, outside of Chicago, and Harvard. Researchers came together from Northwestern and Harvard, and they conducted a study, and this is a fascinating study. What they did is they brought in a group of people, and they divided them into two groups. And they taught both groups how to play a game. Okay? It was the same game. They learned the same rules. Both groups got the exact same instructions, and they were taught how to play it, and then each person was allowed to go and play the game. The difference was, in the one group, the people playing the game were being watched, and they knew they were being watched by the researchers. So they played the game, and they followed the rules, and some of them won, and some of them lost. The second group was told the exact same rules, the exact same game, but they didn't think they were being watched. They didn't think they were being monitored, so what do you think they did? They cheated, because that's what we do. We are broken people living in a broken world. They cheated. That wasn't the study. That's already been scientifically proven. They knew that would happen. They were counting on it. The study was that a few days later, they brought all of the people back in and asked them questions about the game. Asked them questions about how they had played and what had happened, how they had won and what, how they had lost or whatever had happened. The people who had played honestly could answer in detail how the game went. They remembered what they had done. They remembered how things had worked. They remembered how the outcome was. The researchers found, and what they were looking for was about the people who had cheated. And what they found was they couldn't remember very much about the game. They couldn't remember a lot about the rules. They couldn't remember nearly as much about what had happened. 
They couldn't remember nearly as much about what they had done. They had started blocking it out. They weren't lying that they couldn't remember. They literally couldn't remember as much. Unethical amnesia. Their brain, our brain, your brain, is wired in a way to start forgetting and pushing away the things you don't want to believe about yourself. Here's what one of the researchers said. This is, this is fascinating to me. And this is not a pastor. I'm quoting here. This is, a, this is a scientist. And when they were asked, why do you think people do this? At the end of your research, why do you think people do this? And this is what she said. She said, I think it is because it's painful for us to think of ourselves as bad people. And when we forget about the bad actions we've done, we can keep this illusion in our heads that we are wonderful human beings. When we forget about the bad actions we've done, we can keep this illusion in our heads that we are wonderful human beings. That's not a theological position. That's science. So here's the thing. In church, we have different ways of confessing. Sometimes through prayer, sometimes in song, sometimes things come to mind where we're called to kind of realize, Lord, I'm fallen and I'm not perfect. When you confess... Science says that when you do that, you're probably not confessing the things you actually need to confess. Or here's this. If you say, I think I'm a pretty good person living in this world, you are not a reliable or credible witness as to whether that is true. Because your brain is wired to push away evidence of the contrary. It's unethical amnesia. You need a card. Because if I ask you to remember this week and come back in here aware of the places where you have sinned, you're not going to. And neither will I. This week, I want you to take this with you and on one side, write down the times you lie. Write down, no one else is going to see this, I promise you. You're not going to have to show this to anyone. Be honest. The times you gossip about somebody, the times you feel good because someone else struggles, the times that you look at something on the computer that you're not supposed to and then lie to somebody about it and erase the history, the time that you are going to finagle an expenditure to be able to write it off in a way so that your pocket's lined a little bit more. You will sin this week so will I. And by next Sunday, if we don't write it down, we're not really going to remember it. It's easier in that world to go, I think I'm a pretty good person. Living a pretty good life. And that leads us to going, yeah, it's about grace and reconciliation and forgiveness and God's love and grace. We got that. If we take this seriously this week, we're going to have a glimpse of what Simon Peter did because we're going to walk back in here a week from now with these cards, and I want you to bring them next Sunday because that's going to lead into the last part of the statement, and we will be sitting there with our arms out to us going, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. This is who we are. And the good news is there's neither shame nor guilt. There is grace and love and forgiveness. And when you get a glimpse of that, It will change your life as never before. 
So this is on the other side what you're going to write. And this is the last thing. This will bring this up. These words, and I want you to write them in big letters because there's nothing else that's going to be on the other side. Don't be afraid. Come follow me. Don't be afraid. Come follow me. Because no matter what you write on side one, that is God's response to you. And you know what that is? That is good news. The gospel is not about how good we are or even how good we can become. The gospel is about the goodness of God and the grace of God that overpowers any brokenness that we bring. Hallelujah. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that your grace would wash over us this week, not because we just pay lip service to it and drive by with our lives, but because we, like Simon Peter, get confronted with the fact that we are broken. And yet, when you and your grace and your response overwhelms us and encounters us, we will be swept off our feet by your love for us just as we are. May our hearts and our lives catch a glimpse of what Peter and James and John found in a boat which is the unsurpassing goodness of knowing you and knowing you alone. May we sit in our brokenness, may we encounter you, and may your love and your grace wash over us all. 